Lord, we love you. We praise you. God, there's uh, no way we can adequately worship you. And yet your grace and mercy says, whatever we offer with a pure heart is received. And we thank you for that. Lord, there's so much in your word. And uh, we, we just scratch the surface. We just really scratch the surface. So I pray, Lord, you will encourage people to read the scriptures on their own throughout the week. And not just read them <clears throat> as if they're reading the newspaper, but read them as the living Word of God. And what are you, what are you trying to say to us? So, Lord, we, we lay these things at your feet. We lay the sermon at your feet today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so last week, we took another look at what took place in the upper room in Jerusalem. seems like we're stuck in the upper room right now, but it's a good place to be stuck for a while. And it was, di- it was during the final Passover... Excuse me, I'm going to have to use water today a little bit. <clears throat> the worship team demanded that we take the month of January off from rehearsal. So my voice is really out of shape. The worship team said, no, I demanded that of them, by the way. <clears throat> so I'm a little out of shape here. <clears throat> then I get all excited and scream when I'm singing. So. so we're in the upper room during the final Passover. Real quick review. We began with the following three goals. Number one, to educate ourselves concerning the significance of the old Passover ceremony. I think we accomplished that last week. Second is to establish, this morning, to establish the order to some degree in which the events in the upper room occurred. A reminder in that area, the Gospels are not necessarily written in chronological order. They are thematic, and they are talking about events, Passover celebration, lasted hours. The main part of the meal lasted hours. And if it were to be chronicled, it would take up many, many, many books. So what we're seeing from Luke, who, by the way, was not at the Passover, the Lord's Supper. He was not there. He's not an eyewitness account. He has the accounts of others that he's commenting upon. So that's one of the reasons we're going to John today, because John was there. And we're going to get some things established there. But anyway, some of this will appear to be jumbled. And I have to confess, when I woke up this morning, <clears throat> I wondered if I was on a fool's errand. You know what a fool's errand is? And I, I kind of said, Lord, am I on a fool's errand? Does this really matter? And he never answered me. <laughs> so, <laughs> Just out of faith, we're moving on. We're going to do it. So establish the order to some degree as to how these events and when these events happen. And the third thing, which we're not going to get to today, is to better establish the significance of the new covenant of Christ. So we have the new covenant the Old Testament Passover. Then we're going to look about how perhaps that upper room thing happened chronologically as well as some of the traditions. And then the, th- the final thing that we want to talk about perhaps next week is what difference did it make? And it made a huge difference. So, quick review. The centerpiece of the Passover meal is the Seder plate. And on the Seder plate, which means order, by the way, order, Seder order, There are five or six different Passover foods, each symbolizing a unique element of the Exodus story. I'm not going to repeat those. We did that last week. We also discussed the four cups that were traditionally shared during the Passover meal. These cups of wine were diluted, two-part water to one-part wine, four of them. And we we read, this is what happened that night. They were reclining at table, and Jesus raises the first cup. This cup depending on the, <laughs> the information you read, is called a number of things, but they all mean the same thing. So I've 
This is what we're going to say they are. And it's accurate. The first cup is called the cup of blessing or sanctification. That's the first cup. Cup of blessing or sanctification. So Jesus raises that first cup and what follows that very briefly is a ceremonial cleansing of the hands and symbolically of the soul. Then they eat the bitter herbs that are on the Seder plate. And then there's a singing of the Hallel, which would have been Psalms 113 and 114. Raises the first cup. This is what happens. Then he raises the second cup, which is called the cup of deliverance. Here the father of the family would give the Haggadah, which is the explanation of all they were doing. All the symbolism that was laying on that table and when they took it. So they're teaching the younger people and reminding themselves. This is a main meal and including the the eating of the Paschal, which means Passover lamb. Then he raises the third cup, which is called the cup of redemption, which, by the way, is consistent with what he kind of renamed it when he raised that cup. And it is here that Jesus made his startling statement in Luke 22. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, meaning the third cup, that is poured out for you is now, this is where he changes things, is now the new covenant, In my blood. This is interesting in that there were traditionally four cups. And Jesus never got to the fourth cup. After the fourth cup, traditionally they would have sung Psalms 115 and 118. But he sang those songs after the third cup. Jesus knew that he was a fulfillment. Fourth cup is called the cup of praise or hope. And one of the reasons I'm doing this review is because where we left it last week would have been very easy to misunderstand something that we're getting there. It is here that we read in Matthew and John that Christ was offered wine on two separate occasions while on the cross. So he did the first, second, and third cup, omitted the fourth cup. And we're going to talk about what happened in, in, in the upper room still, but this is for a point of clarity. We read in Matthew and John that Christ was offered wine on two separate occasions while on the cross. The first one he rejected because it was mixed with gall, which is another kind of a form of myrrh that would have dulled the pain. And Jesus rejected that because he had to experience the full pain and suffering of our sins. A second cup of sour wine was offered just before his death. Some accounts say that he tasted it. Other accounts leave it up to us to make the decision, or since there is nothing there, we don't make any decision at all. So the reason this is important, a natural and understandable conclusion that could be drawn is that this final cup of sour wine, while he was on the cross, was the fourth cup that he he did not take, that was normally taken at the Passover meal. That is not supporting, the the scriptures do not support that. It's, It's poetic. And it makes a great movie scene. But nowhere does it say that. As a matter of fact, the circumstances under which he partook of the sour wine does not line up with what he had said earlier. 
What he had said earlier in Luke 22:18, he says, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So where does this leave us concerning this? We know that the term kingdom of God is a pretty broad term. It depends a, maybe even a lot on the context. Sometimes he's talking about a kingdom on earth. Sometimes he's talking about the kingdom because he is on the earth. Another time he's talking about the thousand-year reign. Another time it may mean heaven. So we look at the context. Most scholars believe that in this context, Jesus is speaking of either the millennial reign of Christ or the wedding feast. So he, the fourth cup, was not represented on the cross. And by the way, his implication here is the fourth cup would be spent, would be shared with us, not by himself. <clears throat> so it's either the millennial reign, and there's a lot of brilliant people that believe that, and then some people believe it's the marriage feast, and a lot of brilliant people believe that, and since I'm not brilliant, I don't know what I believe with that, and I've also come to the conclusion that right now it doesn't really matter. Because if you believe in Christ, you are going to be there, wherever there is. So, last week, educate ourselves concerning the significance of the old uh, Passover ceremony, Old Testament Passover. So this morning, we will begin in Luke and then quickly switch over to John for some important details. So this morning, this is what we're going to try to do. We're We're going to try to establish kind of a picture that we can view. How many of you have seen, was it Da Vinci? That did the long table with everybody seated. And is it the guy on his left that has this really odd, like, I'm not sure what that means. (laughs) But, okay, get that out of your mind. Nothing near that. Nothing near that. It's pretty humble. uh, Pretty sparse. But very significant. So the question is, why is this important? I think it's important because it will help us grasp the gravity of what took place by lending some insight into the heightened emotional and spiritual level that was present that night. A lot of things happened that night. And the the, the details are scarce. So, again, I'm saying this is conjecture, but some of it is supported pretty well by Scripture. Think about this for a moment. We're about to witness the last 24 hours of the life of Jesus Christ. Last 24 hours. We have already established that God had ordained this to happen before the foundation of the world. And Satan was doing everything in his power to prevent this from happening. Why? This is the victory. This is the part that Satan feared the most. Imagine the difference between reading the account of the Last Supper in outline form, if we didn't have the story. These are the bullet points. We'd be rather dry. Luckily, we have the story form. But if we look at the Scripture carefully, there's even more we we can begin to visualize. So this is what we know. There was the first cup, blessing, followed uh, followed by the second cup, the cup of deliverance. Now, remember that from their youth, the disciples had experienced Passover. They were dedicated Jewish people. The Passover was nothing new for the disciples. 
And they had already spent two Passovers with Jesus. And their fathers had already explained to them over and over again what everything meant in the Old Covenant. So there was nothing new at the point as they reclined and began the liturgy of the Passover. Same old, same old. Sound familiar? Same old, same old. Sometimes communion is the same old, same old. Sometimes church is the same way. They'd been there before. They had done this before. It is at this point that most of the activity that is recorded in the Gospels concerning the upper room would have taken place after the second cup. The cup was taken. The Haggadah took place with discussion, perhaps some reminiscing. More prophecy from Jesus, by the way. Eating and arguing and ultimately the betrayal from Judas. Placed upon the table would have been a number of bowls, maybe three in this case, 13 people, would have been a number of bowls that contained meat and broth. It was customary for two or perhaps three people to share a bowl in which they would dip pieces of bread. So there's the table. There's 13 men reclining around this table. They're on both sides of the table. They're not posing for a photograph or for a painting. And so things are closer than what you would think, and yet probably far enough apart that they would have had three bowls. <clears throat> and they would dip bread into those into that meat and broth. And we know to some degree from the gospel accounts what the seating arrangement was. We know that Judas shared a bowl with Christ. We know this because it is noted in John. John 13, 26 says this, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it, handed it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So we know that Judas was within arm's reach of Jesus. As a matter of fact, I can see where he would want to be very close to Jesus. There's two reasons for this. One is he hears everything that's going on. And secondly, Judas was a poser. You know what a poser is? Always wants to be in the front. Always wants to pretend he's something he's not. And he controlled the money. This would require that Judas was reclining near and perhaps right next to Jesus. And we know that John was reclining next to Jesus... John 13, 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. And then according to John 13, 24, Peter was reclining near or even next to John. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. This is at the time when Jesus said, someone's going to betray me. And we can look at this at perhaps, if you're looking at this scene up here, perhaps Judas... I'm not Jesus, but Jesus would be here, John would be here, and Peter would probably be here or over there. And by the way, Peter and John and James were part of the inner circle of Christ. Christ showed them things that he did not show the other seven uh, apostles, or eleven, to whatever there is in that, uh, apostles. Mount of Transfiguration, he also took them with him in Gethsemane. So it's, it kind of stands to reason that they're clumped there.
So here's the possible scene. Jesus is teaching the Haggadah. Judas is on one side of Jesus, and John is on the other side of Jesus, and Peter is near or next to John. James is probably close as well. We are told in the following, Luke twenty-two twenty-four. so... You have to find that on your scripture sheet if you're following along. We learn this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And by the way, this was not the first time they had that argument. In Luke nine forty-six, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. It would kind of benefit us to know how Jesus handled that one, right? So in Luke 9, 47 and 48, this is how he handled it. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, knowing their motive, took a child and put him by his side. Another version says he put him up on his lap and and hugged him and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For... He who is least among you all is the one who is great. This is how he diffused that argument earlier. It's a brilliant example, by the way, of how to rebuke men who are typically stiff-necked and prideful. They were all stiff-necked and prideful. I'm stiff-necked and prideful. I know none of you are, but I have to confess that I am. There are times... There are times... When even ladies are stiff-necked and prideful. Barbara and I have this thing going on. It's a brilliant example of the wisdom and the divine knowledge of Jesus Christ. These are 11 of the 12 men that are going to carry the gospel. So by doing this, By gently embracing this child, he reduces his disciples to an, oh yeah, we keep forgetting this is not about us moment. You ever have to be reminded of that? Sometimes we can feel pretty important, right? And it's just... So once again, they are full of themselves and arguing at the Passover meal. Now think about this. By the way, James and John were not called the sons of thunder for no reason. They had tempers. You see those tempers almost disappear in Acts and the Gospels. And Paul was a jerk. And now, and you look at him later on, and he's he's so loving. The Holy Spirit can do that. And we all know how impetuous Peter was. Blissfully and ignorantly passionate. But he was also quick to repent. So these these are the men that are around him and 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 he has rebuked them. But what if it was at that moment in the upper room while they were arguing that Jesus quietly arose from the table... And removing his outer clothing, went to a basin of water, dipped the cloth into the water, and began to wash their feet. So you have these men who are arguing how great they are. 
Now, this is what Jesus knows. He has 24 hours. And he's about to hand the gospel over to these men who are arguing about how great they are. Now, how would you have handled that? I can tell you how I probably would have handled it. And it wouldn't have been the way he did this. How impactful would that have been to these men? How dramatic would that have been? How humbling would that have been? And by the way, not only were the male egos at the table on full display and at full throttle, but there is spiritual activity taking place as well between Satan and Judas. We read the following, John 13, 2. It was during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. It's important to know because it tells us that by the time Jesus began to wash their feet, Judas knew what he was going to do. He had made up his mind to carry out the plan he had hatched to betray him when he went to the Sanhedrin earlier. And he's figuring this is the best time to get this done. Now, he doesn't know there's going to be a crucifixion because no one knows there's going to be a crucifixion. So Judas is trying to figure this out. And it says, during supper was when the devil, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So let's go inside that upper room for, for another moment. Can you imagine being one of these guys reclining in that upper room and arguing about how great you are? And then out of the corner of your eye, you see Jesus quietly stand up walk to a basin of water, dip his hands into the water, and approach the first disciple. Now, here's some background. In those days, men wore an outer cape or a robe. There's a long robe that would reach to the ankles. Under that, they wore a knee-length tunic. And then, as an undergarment, they wore what they called a short breech cloth. Now, a breech cloth would look like something you've seen in old-fashioned movies where there are slaves on a ship and they've just taken cloth and they've wrapped it around and kind of formed, for the lack of a better term, uh, underwear. And so this is what he, what he had on. And you can gather from this passage, when Jesus began to wash your feet, he took off his outer robe, the long flowing robe that he wore, and also the short tunic. Why? Because being dressed in his undergarment, a breechcloth, he was wearing the same apparel as a slave, a servant. They were in the middle of an argument about who would be the greatest. He began washing their feet. So here is the point. While these fallen and sin-drenched men were arguing over their own legacy and future honors, the Holy Messiah, God incarnate, who was sinless and would soon take their sins upon Himself, chose to serve them in the lowliest and most humiliating way possible as He began to wash their feet. The common custom. If you come up to a home where they do not have the money for servants, there is a, a little a pail of water and you dip your feet in that water and maybe there's something to dry them with before you go in. Otherwise, they have a servant or a slave, the, the lowest rung on the ladder to wash the feet of the people that come into the house. And they're fighting over greatness 
and the Holy Messiah, God incarnate, who is sinless, is washing their feet. And just for the record, none of these guys would have done that. How do we know that? Because they didn't. They didn't do it. So what was their reaction? You getting the picture? Upper room. Table close to the floor. Thirteen men around a table. They're dipping bread in meat and broth. And Jesus is teaching the Haggadah. And at some point an argument breaks out. And he probably looks at them and he's thinking... And he did to them what he did to them with that little boy and said, unless you are like one of these, he stands up and he goes over and he gets what he needs and he begins to wash their feet. What is their reaction? Well, we do not know whose feet he washed first, nor do we know anyone else's reaction except for our good friend Simon Peter. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? You can read all kinds of things into that. It might be, Lord, I will not let you wash my feet. Lord, do you have no dignity that you wash my feet? It could be anything. Lord, you do not wash my feet. Do you wash my feet? As a matter of fact, he said later, you will not. Listen to Jesus' answer. What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. When is afterward? When the Old Testament covenant is fulfilled, the New Testament covenant is in place, resurrection, it says in the Scriptures, and they remembered what Jesus had said. What's the next three words? Typically, and they believed. Jesus knew they weren't going to get this. At that point. What I am doing you do not understand now. But afterward you will understand. And here's here's impetuous Peter. You shall never wash my feet. There's no. The punctuation here is interesting. But Jesus answered him. If I do not wash you. You have no share with me. Period. Simon. Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head, exclamation point. Jesus, Simon, you don't get it right now. You will get it. But if I don't wash your feet, you can have no part in me, brother. And Jesus is all excited. I mean, uh, Judas is all excited. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. But not every one of you, verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Culturally, bathhouses were erected in Rome. If you come into town for a special event, you can go to a bathhouse and you can bathe, but your feet is going to get dirty as soon as you walk to the next place because they had sandals. So this was a pretty typical thing to do. Now, there's some things we can read into this. Depending on the gospel account you read, we know, according to Luke, that they were at Golgotha, I'm I'm sorry, at uh, Gethsemane. What were they doing? Uh, Mount of Olives. What were they doing for three or four days? They were praying. He was teaching. Why? Because he knew they were hunting for him. So there's a possibility that they did not 
go to a bathhouse when they came into Jerusalem. Because he would be seen. They would all be seen. It's a possibility. Why am I bringing that out? Because their feet were probably really, really, really stinky. And then Jesus quickly moves on in an effort to open their eyes to the fruit, to the truth ever so slightly. In John thirteen twelve, he says this, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them. Now, get this. Resumed his place. So we know that the washing of the feet was not the last thing they did. But if you read it in chronological order, it appears that it was. But that's not right. He washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, same place. And he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. I love what he asks them in this scripture. He doesn't ask, do you understand what I have done for you? Rather, he says, do you understand what I have done to you? There's a difference here. And then he follows it up with an explanation what his act of humility was to illustrate to them. He says, do you understand what I have done to you? If I then, your Lord and teacher, as you have confessed that I am, and they did confess that he was Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. These very powerful words. And he continues on in verse 16. Truly, truly. He says, truly, and I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Truly. I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Folks, whether you believe in eternal security or loss of salvation, obedience is just as important either way. You know, I can be the son of a millionaire, which I'm not, but I could be the son of a millionaire and have everything anyone could want. And I could break the law, I could do horrendous things, and it makes me no less the son of a millionaire, but my life has changed, right? There are consequences to our sin. Real small, easy, easy, here it is, sin equals pain. Whether you are a believer or not, sin equals pain. And by the way, that pain is not restricted to the one who's sinning. Sin equals pain for their family, their friends, their future, the people they work with. It Sin changes things. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Do you understand what I have done to you? Jesus destroyed the premise of their argument that created the division among them, which was pride. Are we beginning to grasp the eternal importance of every word Jesus was speaking in that upper room? 
That which is taking place in the upper room is magnificent in its scope. It is dramatic in its presentation. And it is beyond comprehension in its significance for these men. It's way over their heads. It's way over their heads. The 11 men who would be responsible for carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Understand this. It started with 11 men. Judas would be replaced. These men who who God was giving into their hands the gospel of Jesus Christ for the entire world were in a verbal fistfight in the middle of the Passover celebration as to who among them would be the greatest. This is what Jesus knew. He knew that pride and arrogance would destroy them and in turn destroy their mission. It's true for us today. Who do you think was stirring all of that? Real easy answer. Satan. Why? Okay, this is all conjecture, right? If I'm that if I'm the bad guy and I'm trying I'm doing everything in my power to keep the cross from happening. And I know I can't control Jesus and I know I can't control God and I know what road this is on. Who am I going to attack? The apostles. What's the most effective way? Their pride. If I can just get them to be so angry with one another, they all run out of this room. At least I can do that. Satan is not a sleeper. Satan is present. By the way, when you say Satan's attacking me, uh, don't think so highly of yourself. He can only be one place at a time. He was here. Why? Because this was it. Satan's only one entity and he's not omnipresent and he's not omniscient and he's not omnipotent. Same is true for us today, is it not? All sin is built upon the foundational stone of pride. It was pride that conquered Lucifer. It was pride that conquered Adam and Eve. And it is pride that still destroys families and churches today. This is what Jesus did. I'm going to remove any thought you may have that you own anything that's worth any value so you won't be so silly as to fight over it. But I follow Paul and I follow Apollos. Well, I followed Jesus when he was walking on earth. Here's what Jesus is saying. You want to brag about being with me? Then do what I do. Wash feet. Wash feet. Otherwise, you're not with me. You're proving you're not with me. If you're not washing feet, you're not with me. You don't belong to me. Isn't that that strong? Jesus lovingly rebukes these men by placing himself in the humble position of a slave. 
and washing their feet. So here it is. The verbal fist fight winds down as they watch what Jesus is doing. And that is when Jesus gives his, his, drives his point home. And then Jesus returns to his place at the table. And they, they probably never left their place at the table. He probably went around the table and washed their feet. Remember, all the feet are pointing out. They're not under the table. Jesus goes around the table and he washes their feet. And that is when Jesus drives this point home. Jesus returns to his place and he says this, John 13, 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now look at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. They're at the table. Feet have been washed. The Haggadah has been explained. Jesus has stood up. He's taken off his outer garments. He's picked up the towel and he's washed their feet. And they're stunned. And then he says this. And he says, by the way, one of you here tonight will betray me. Can you imagine? At this point, we return to Luke twenty-two twenty-one. It's on the back side of your scripture sheet. And we read this. But behold... He says, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. You know what he He says, I go the way I go because it has been predetermined that I go there. But he's not saying that about Judas. Okay, don't fall for the lie that Satan tells you that Judas had no choice. For the Son of Man goes at, at, as it has been determined, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Another scripture says it would be better that he had never been born. Judas had not yet picked, gone from the table. He had not yet gone to the Sanhedrin to say, this is, where, this is where he's going to be. We've met there for the past three nights. I know that's where they're going. He could have not gone. He was not moved by the foot washing at all. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this? And here Luke places the dispute among the disciples at the foot washing. And he says, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus continues to make his point about servitude. Verse 25, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. Now, benefactors has a couple of meanings. One of them is benefactors are the people who benefit from the service of the slaves, and they would not deal with the slaves unless it did benefit them. That's important to know because this is what Jesus says, but not so you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But look, I'm among you as the one who serves. 
You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom. That's so huge. That you may eat and drink the fourth cup at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. They didn't get it. I wouldn't have gotten it. What he was saying was incredible. You know, Peter, James, John, God has assigned to me a kingdom. In the kingdom that God assigns to me, I have the right to assign a kingdom to whom I choose. And I'm telling you, I am assigning you a kingdom. Now, the kingdom that they were assigned, we don't have time to get into this, but the kingdom they were assigned is a little different than the one we have, but yet it's very similar. What were they, desi- what were they assigned to do? They were assigned to sh- spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for that, what do they get? They will sit and sup with Jesus Christ in the kingdom. We are assigned the kingdom as we have received Christ to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just leave you with this. Pride is an ugly thing. Pride is a powerful thing. And we all deal with it. And only you can surrender it. I can't surrender your pride for you, and I can't, you can't surrender my pride for me. But it is very much the cornerstone of conflict. And Jesus knew that, and He said, if you say you love me, you'll wash people's feet. Because that eliminates the pride. If you're not serving for Christ, how are you eliminating pride? If you're not serving any place, who's checking your pride? And you know me well enough, this, we're not on a campaign to get people to help with the church. I'm just saying, if you're not serving, there's a really good chance you think fairly highly of yourself. Worship team. I'll just speak for me. That's not serving for me. It's what I love. And it's okay to love where you serve. This demands no humility for me. I better be serving someplace else. That makes sense? You know, if you love athletics and you become a coach... And that's your service. You better be careful. You better be careful. Lord, we love you. Pride sneaks in. I have a picture of Satan that night, desperate and frustrated. But he didn't give up. Lord, how differently this could have gone had Jesus not loved them so much that rather than rebuking them and casting them out, He chose to wash your feet. 
Lord, you are good and you are faithful. And we thank you. For it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would love to pray with you about that. Blessings. Soup and salad down there. Lord, we thank you for the food. Please bless the food. How's that? Is that good? Amen.